Welcome to Intersections, where our goal is to dissolve the boundaries between everything and everything, between East and West, science and spirituality, profit and purpose, between inner and outer. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Daniel Coyle. Daniel is a New York Times bestselling author of a number of great books. I have been a student of Daniel's work for many years, have drawn upon it for my own growth and also to bring new ideas and insights to my audiences. And so it is a special privilege and pleasure to have this opportunity today for a live conversation with Daniel, for us to get to know him better and for me to have all of you get a chance to hear directly from Daniel as well. His book, The Culture Code, has been named the best business book of the year by Bloomberg and other sources. His other books include Hardball, which was turned into a movie starring Keanu Reeves. And he's also written The Secret Race and The Little Book of Talent, 52 Tips for Improving Your Skills, which is one of the books that I have really enjoyed and drawn so much from in our work and study of the science of human nature. He has served as an advisor to many high-performing organizations, including Google, the U.S. Navy SEALs, and Microsoft. Today, we are going to be talking with Daniel about his latest book, The Culture Playbook. In this book, he is distilling everything he's learned into 60 concrete, actionable tips and exercises to help your team build a cohesive and positive culture. I'm going to start just with a quote from Daniel from the conversation that we're just going to have with him, where he says, solving hard problems with people you admire is a very special experience in life. What a great definition of a high-performing team. Greetings, Daniel, and a warm welcome to Intersections. It's nice to be standing at the intersection with you, Hitendra. Thanks for having me. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. I have long been a fan of your work. You know, kudos to you for having gone down this path of um, identifying some of the, you know, I think the most central opportunities and needs and hungers, you know, in society over the last, um, you know, 15 years or so. And um, bringing to us some beautiful fare, very accessible, very engaging, very persuasive and yet very practical in a series of books that you've done from the talent code to the one that you did after that. What was that one called? The very practical kind of playbook around talent. Yeah. The little book of talent. It was called. Little book of talent. Yeah. yeah. I remember that too. And then more recently the culture code and now, and now the culture playbook. Yeah. yeah no, it's been, it's been fun. It's been a lot of fun and it's been fun to like you. I think I like to spend my life investigating big mysteries that matter to people and all of these subjects, whether it's individual talent or how groups perform are endlessly fascinating and endlessly interesting and endlessly useful. I think. Yes. So true. I want to come back a little bit on the craftsmanship of the, you know, the, the work that you do and also your personal motivations in doing that. So a forewarning that at some point in the conversation, I'll pivot a little bit into your personal journey. Uh, but let's start with, let's start with um, some of the key breakthroughs that you have found in the most recent research you have done. Mm -hmm. You have moved the focus from the individual to the group or collective pursuit of excellence. Mm -hmm. And um, not just that, but also moved from purely giving broad sweeping insights more to a set of really practical tools, which is something I really value about the, about the culture playbook. Um, you know, what, um, you know, what for you has been like the most striking thing? What has been the most like surprising finding, you know, as you have sought to understand high performing groups? I think the big one, when I, when I started, I had this idea that I think a lot of people share, 
which is that when you get to very high performing groups, that everything is going, everything is going to be very smooth and happy, right? If you work at Pixar, you sort of have this image, or I have an image from outside of Pixar to say all the ideas are good ones and every meeting is filled with agreement and, and fresh creativity and fresh genius. And the same if you went with the Navy SEALs or if you went with the San Antonio Spurs or any high performing group. In fact, um, that's wildly wrong. Like this, this, they're actually good because they're really good at arguing. They're really good at turning toward their problems, turning toward their tensions together. And that's what makes them special. In, in, in bad cultures, when the problem pops up, people sort of ignore it or turn away. They don't want to risk their reputation. They don't want to risk looking foolish. And in great cultures, people spot the problem and then gather around it and have high energy, intensive discussions to try to make it better, to try to fix it, or to try to exploit this opportunity. And this turning toward the tension um, makes these places, they're not as sort of filled with champagne bubbles as, as you might imagine them from the outside, but they're filled with a, a different sort of energy. And it's the energy of solving hard problems with people you admire. And that right. is a really special experience in life, solving hard problems with people you admire. And that's the the kind of juice and, and the addictive quality. When you find a, a great culture, what you find is that people will orbit in and out of them. They might leave for a little while, but then they have a way of coming back because that's where they get that, that special feeling of solving hard problems with people you admire. So I guess that was the biggest uh, mistake I had or mistaken impression that I had going into it. I thought I'd get there and it would be like Xanadu. It would be just magical and perfect. And it's actually sort of perfect in a very different, unexpected way. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, you mentioned how when you have hung out with these teams, uh, that you found that one word keeps coming up in the way they talk about each other. They talk about themselves. Yeah. And that word is family. They, they sort of feel connected. They talk about their brothers and they feel and their sisters and they feel connected into a community. Um, that word is a double edged sword at times. It captures the feeling. Um, but when you do find some organizations use it too loosely, and in fact, when you have a job and a business, you can be fired. And so that metaphor becomes actually ironically painful, the idea that you can't ever fire your brother or your sister. But um, so I, I find smart groups now are going more toward words like community, community okay. rather okay. than family, family, family. But yeah. the feeling, the vibration you have is very familial. You know, I remember I saw, I think, like a... Um... Uh, thought from Adam Grant once about something like this, about like, you know, it shouldn't be family because like, you know, you don't fire people. Let's be real about. I actually, you know, I, I think a little bit differently about it, Daniel. And so I'm just here to kind of test my thought on this with you, which is that I've had situations in my own organization, Mentor Institute, where people have had to leave either because they chose to, they wanted to go and do something else mm -hmm. or because things weren't working out, you know, in the right way, you know, for them. And I have really striven. Now, I'm not claiming that ours is like one of these exemplary high-performing team things, but just as a value around this idea of family, I've really striven to create a culture where even if they leave, we can wish them well, we can, you know, just like pray for their success and stay in touch with them. And from time to time, seek to have some forms of reunions and yep. think of them as our alums, you know, just like, uh, you know, university where they graduate from. I love and that. so to that end, I mean, that's true in a family, too. You know, our children fly out of the nest at some point. We have to let them go. And sometimes people move in, you know, opposite directions geographically or professionally or otherwise. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that they're no longer family, you know. So I almost wonder if we should, like, you know, 
challenge this taboo of being fired mm. you know from one which says that now we are engaging in a um you know clearly very um conflict laden divorce you mm-hmm. know to more like you know you're moving on to the right pastures you know for the next chapter of your life that is so true and it's really it's really interesting because when you see how good cultures handle off offboarding departures they handle it in a very signature way they had they amplify the warmth around it they they create events around it there was a there was a football coach named bill walsh who's probably one of the best football coaches ever san san francisco 49ers um when coaches left he would hand them the playbook and say here's your blueprint for success in your next job and at most places that would be thought of as ip like we can't give them the playbook but he did and actually do some consulting with the cleveland guardians baseball team and when one of their assistant coaches gets an opportunity to be a head coach at another place. They spend hours prepping that person, prepping them, doing practice interviews, telling them what suit they should wear. And that is such a signature thing because you're, you care about the person and you want that person to fulfill their potential and you want to express that care in a really simple way. And so it's this amazing, like so many things similar to the tension conversation that we just had turning toward the tension instead of away. So many things about good culture are a matter of feeling your initial instinct to do something and then kind of doing the opposite <laughs> because there's initial instinct when someone's leaving to kind of fold your arms and say, good luck, I'll see you down the road and not observe the parting, not, not spotlight the departure. And good cultures pause and they generate and amplify warmth about it and they actually flip it away from this sort of, well, don't let the door hit you on the way out to how can I help you? more in this new job that you're going to. And what that creates is this larger connection, this larger sense of goodwill. And it does create sort of that orbital pattern that people have with cultures where you may be saying goodbye to them, but in a few years, they may come back and that relationship stays. Ah, yeah. I don't know. It just like really warms my heart when I hear these kinds of stories and you've given us such beautiful data points there. And, um, you know, I, I sometimes think about like trust, right. And, um, what could be um, actions that can typically what they say is trust takes a long time to build, mm. but it can be destroyed like overnight, you know, just with like one bad, you know, kind of action that lacks in integrity. But I also sometimes wonder about the opposite, which is, is it possible sometimes in some cases for one noble action to just like accelerate trust building? You know, I'm thinking, you know, for example, Zelensky, right? Like everybody expected him to take that like exit path that America was giving him and just to leave the country safely with his family, probably had some riches somewhere saved up and, you know, live comfortably, you know, with with the regret that he couldn't like, you know, still preside over his nation. And then he did the complete opposite, right? And it did accelerate trust building, isn't it? For him across the world, across the world. That's right. So there are sometimes these moments, I I don't know. I mean, have you found in your research that... um, there are certain practices like this that sort of really help to strengthen trust. I know that's a key theme that you really explored as well. But they really are. The fascinating thing about trust, the thing about the the science of trust that we're really starting to understand is that we normally think of trust and vulnerability as I need to build up some trust before I can be vulnerable. But what all the science is showing us is that we have it exactly backwards, that moments of vulnerability when they are shared are what create trust. To go back to Zelensky, his action that he did prior to that was when he got elected was to ask everyone to take down his picture and put up pictures of their family. Mm-hmm, yeah. Very simple thing, right? Not a big, yeah. it didn't have any effect on policy. It didn't have any effect. Incredibly powerful signal. 
And yeah. those sorts of signal where he's saying, hey, it, it, and you can think of it as vulnerability. He could sort of say, I want to hang on to the status and the power. And it must feel pretty good to have your picture in every office in a country. Like that's kind of a power trip. But yeah. he's saying, no, 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 let's flip that. Let's do the opposite of that. Let's have you put up. And that's part of what a, a million little signals that any leader sends. I mean, that's, I guess the pattern I've seen is this consistent ability to be fallible and, and to be vulnerable. And, and those moments, which I call vulnerability loops in my, in my work, when, when a group of people can have this habit of sort of telling the truth, really, it's not, it's not some emotional thing where you're talking about your parents and your emotions. It's just saying, hey, I, I, this is my first draft. I, don't, I think it needs help. Or I really need your help on this. I really need your help on this. Yeah, yeah. Great job. When you, when you get to Pixar, uh, there's a, there's a, they have a screening room and they invite all the new employees who are getting trained at the same time. And there's baristas in that room. There's, you know, filmmakers, there's engineers, there's janitors. And uh, the president of Pixar stands up on the stage and he says, whatever you were before, you're a filmmaker now. Mm -hmm. We need your help to make our films better. And then they have these meetings. They call them when you're plussing. They'll show a draft of a, of a movie, and when if someone has anything they think could be added, uh, they, they're free to voice that suggestion. And I met a, a guy who he worked as an engineer. He wasn't in the creative side at all. But right. he made a suggestion uh, on the, the medals that the Boy Scout wore in the Pixar movie Up. He said there was some visual joke, and he, he suggested that, and they put it in the movie. Hmm. Whatever you were for, you're a movie maker now. We need your help to make our films better. That's a signal of fallibility. It would be very, very easy for any leader to say, "Welcome to Pixar. We are really good at what we do, and and we have to. We want to achieve high standards, and we need the best of your efforts." No, that's not what he said. He said, "We need your help," and that's a very yeah. different signal. And so yeah. that that idea that those signals of fallibility, vulnerability, are what allow a group to have situational awareness, to have voice, to be able to navigate a very complex landscape together. That vulnerability isn't just like some extra, like extra good feeling vibe, like warm fuzzy. It's actually cognitively essential because it creates awareness of what's actually going on. If you walk around saying, no, this is, this presentation is great. It doesn't need any help. And you should keep my picture hung in your office and we're great. We don't need your help making a movie. When you don't spread that signal, you don't get the sort of shared participation in the group brain that you need to be better. This group brain, um, <clears throat> it seems like it's more and more an almost um, irreversible, unavoidable just shift that is starting to happen in the manner in which organizations and societies work, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I had a guest speaker in my class at Columbia the other day. CEO of a company, and he was uh, sharing how he had had a conversation with um, one of the one of the generals in the in the U.S. Army, and uh, the general was saying, "Look, you know, several years ago, uh, we used to have a certain set of operating procedures and practices and technology and all of that, and we got trained in it from a very young, you know, tenure in the armed forces. And then by the time you became general, you had like learned that whole, you know, kind of series of things over the course of your career. Today, I mean, with drones and this and that and everything, I mean, people who are at the top, they haven't gone through so much of what those who are on the ground are actually experts at. Yeah. 
So we just simply cannot operate anymore with command and control. That's so true. It's so true. If you had to, you know, and, it, and it's, I think David Brooks put it really well. He said, what efficiency was to the industrial era, relationships are to today. Uh, and, yeah. and, and that, I, I think that that really puts a nice structural, puts it in its place because groups today, they're not like a command. They're not like an army marching across a landscape or a, a football, American football team, you know, playing plays and deciding what scheme they're going to use. It's much more like a pickup basketball game, or it's much more like a flock of birds flying together through a forest where you don't have one bird saying turn 10 degrees to the left here and then turn 20 degrees to the right here. They've all got to see it and they've all Mm -hmm. got to be able to react in time and be situationally aware and still know where they're going, still know where north is. And so those qualities I think are the ones that I end up writing about the, those as skills, like, because we're asking now every group to do something, things that are really difficult, two things that are really difficult to do together, stay connected and learn in real yeah. time. Like yeah, yeah. that's a heck of a thing to do. That idea that you have to sort of be malleable, right? You have to stay together, but you have to reform your relationships around new goals. And we had such a vivid, some really beautifully vivid case studies of that during COVID. Um, maybe one of my favorite is, is, you know, you had Peloton who had, was perfectly set up to succeed during COVID. They had a product everyone was craving. They had a good product. Um, and on the other side, you had like a lo- my local restaurant here is called Edwin's. And when they, uh, when COVID happened, everybody thought, oh, that they're, they're going to go out of business. How can they survive? They, they, people can't come in there to eat. Um, and then we fast forward to today, Peloton is, auguring in because of bad leadership. They made a set of assumptions. Those assumptions were wrong. Uh, they made wrong investments. They wrong made bad investments all over the place and they're coming in. And my local restaurant is making more money than ever because they were malleable. They were able to reform and self-organize and self-organize. I think that's a really important idea. This idea they could self-organize around this obstacle and say, oh no, we can make we can sell dinners for whole families for $40 and we can have our waiters park cars instead. And we can build an app and we can, they, they literally in real time sort of reorganize themselves like that flock of birds. And as a result, they're still around Peloton didn't have a group brain. They had one, two people making big decisions and those decisions ended up being wrong. And I think a group brain will always beat uh, a single command and control operation. So that you're right. That's the landscape we're living in. And it's a, it's a fascinating time. Wow. You know, when you talked about self-organization and you reminded me of this moment, um, my family and I were traveling in Botswana, you know, doing the African safari thing. And it was like amazing. I mean, all of the flora and fauna and just the grandiosity of nature and everything. And then we were like passing by these like little, like, mud hills and not really paying much attention to these little formations because like we were interested in the lions and the elephants and then at some point i said like you know tell me a little bit about these 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 hills right these little mud based and what are these and and then the guide looks at me and says i was wondering if you'd ever ask these are termite mounds and mm-hmm. he says this is the largest like uh tallest um non-man-made like you know construction in in nature <laughs> done by termites 
Yeah. And then he started to talk about those termites. And like, you know, millions of them in each of those mounds take 60, 70 years. Each of them typically lives for less than a year. So it's like 60 generations of them are actually contributing to the ultimate making of it. Intricate tunnels and air like flows, you know, within it. And soldier termites that like, you know, out there to protect. And then construction termites who are like, you know, and you just think about these guys, these are termites. But that kind of collective intelligence you yeah. know, that is there in nature. It almost seems to me that we are being invited to move away from a little bit of like that individualistic quest, yeah. right, for just focusing on our own personal glory into something that is more in tune with nature. Okay. That's so true. And that's so deep. And, and the, the irony of it to layer something onto the, what you just said is that we are educated as individuals. We are trained as individuals, we're hired as individuals, we're assessed as individuals, we're promoted as individuals, and yet all of our success, all of our team's success depends on this weird set of skills that we never talk about. You know, this skill of the sport and skill set of building strong relationships and of figuring out what our purpose is and of being vulnerable to build trust and of amplifying our warmth to build safety. So... You know, in some ways, I think this is sort of a golden age for this this particular this particular skill set, which we don't spend enough time thinking about, talking about, celebrating. Um, and it's it's I think an opportunity to sort of see ourselves and our teams in a new way. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, I'm struck about one. Um, you know, one piece of what you just said: relationships, right? So. There's a very successful, like, billionaire, um, you know, business, uh, you know, man who's uh, self-made. Like, he started with almost, you know, very, very little. And he said <laughs> that when I was growing up, I had a um, set of seven siblings. And I was the youngest of them all. And he said that what I learned in living in that large family about how to influence, how to, you know, stay harmonious in relationships how to work with different personalities um, and uh, address and, you know, support like different egos, you know, that exist. Yep. He says like that has held me in such good stead yeah. all through my business career. I love that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, then I think about sports teams as another arena in which sometimes some of that aspect of culture is sculpted, right? Of relationships, you know, as young as when we were in high school or in college. So I wonder, like, I, I don't know, in, in your research, you have focused on, the current day practices of high performing cultures and teams. Mm -hmm. um, you know, have you done any kind of retrospective also on the people who show up and do well in those environments? You know, what has been in a sense their journey in life and have they at some point perhaps during their formative years had, um, you know, had a need to have to, you know, so uh, I don't know if you know uh, Jamil Zaki, he's this beautiful, beautiful human being and he's a professor at uh, Stanford. Um, and he's written, um, you know, a beautiful book on empathy, you know, that's his passion, that's his research. And he talks about how, you know, he had this challenging woman growing up where his parents just didn't get along with each other. They, they divorced and separated and divorced. And he said, I, I, I would go to each of them. And sometimes I would hear a very different perspective, you know, from one versus from the other. And he said, I, I just had to become good at like, you know, just like holding that space, you know, for them and empathizing and understanding two different versions of truth, you know, et cetera. Anyway, so I'm just curious if, you know, you found that there are some of these like formative moments people have had, which have actually made them really great team players. Yeah. Only anecdotally, just like you, I see that same pattern. You certainly see it with, with many skill sets. It even extends into the physical world where the fastest sprinters in the world are usually average fourth born in their family. 
There's I never see. a first top, a firstborn in the in the in the finals of the of the hundred meters uh, ever. And so it's not whether you're from West Africa or East Africa or, or the UK. It's yeah. more about where you are in your family and that windshield that you have that you're sort of competing against. Um, and anecdotally, I have the same the same sort of thing where these skills. There's a wonderful experiment that I write about in the um, in the Culture Code called the Bad Apple Experiment, where a psychologist purposely put people in groups and he planted someone to be a complainer to add negative energy and that 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 bad apple was able to drastically diminish the performance of every group as we know bad apples are incredibly toxic to group performance except for one right. group and this drove the researcher crazy because there was one group where there was a guy in it and he began to call him the good apple um, because he would persistently redirect the bad apple and change the topic and and listen to him and and use that energy in a positive way and that guy turned out to be the son of a diplomat. He'd uh, been yeah. around all of these sorts of... So again, to your point, that skill... If we've learned anything about skill is that it doesn't come from nowhere. It's not magic. To build a skill, you have to get reps. You have to get yeah. feedback. You have to have be motivated to try to get... To enjoy those reps and those feedback. And so to me, it makes perfect sense. And the other thing that, that your question kind of opens up is how difficult it is to build those skills in the modern era where so much of our media, so much of our consumer life is built around individualizing us. And so little of it is built around like groups and teams. So again, it strikes me as like, there is an opportunity to define a vocabulary, a skill set, um, for people to start to see this dimension of their, of their skill set, uh, which can be far more powerful than, your IQ or whatever measure of intelligence you might have. There's so many people that are very smart now. Smartness is never the limiting factor. It is almost never. Uh, what is the limiting factor is, are they a good teammate? Are they, can they combine with people in a way that is joyful, open, productive, purposeful, safe, um, or not? And there's a lot of various, and, and these two traits, I think, cut against each other very often. When you're told you're smart and focused on smart, you end up kind of closing down your awareness of other people. And what you see with good groups is always this broad awareness of how's the team doing right now? What do I need to do to help that person? And yet we're often ignoring those skill sets. So again, I think it's a, it's a huge opportunity. Oh, beautiful. Um, you might be familiar with this, but there's been this like really powerful researcher since from 2008 onwards around... Um, why like smart people do dumb things? Oh, really? Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, Daniel, you and I, we live in this age, but there's such an explosion of like research happening. It's hard to keep on top of all of it, right? Yeah, yeah. So, um, but anyway, I think you love this. Uh, so what this shows is that, um, you know, high IQ can actually be a disadvantage mm. rather than an advantage because what it does, which, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of like building, building on your own points, but I think it'll just kind of add a little bit more, maybe texture, right? To what you're saying, yeah. which is that what it says is that, um, you know, we tend to have this thing called my side bias, right? Where like anytime we hear contrarian, you know, points from somebody, we have a disposition towards wanting to either diminish the, you know, the standing of the other source to say, look, that source is not credible because of this or to actually counter it with like our own, you know, counter logic and our data and, our, you know, seven arguments for why we are right and they're wrong, you know, kind of thing. <clears throat> I mean, all of us have that. That's not unique to just some people. 
But what happens is the this higher your IQ, the more you are able to like in real time crush the opposing view. Because hmm. you can marshal more data, you can speak yeah. with more incisive logic, you can be very yes. fast on your feet, and you know you're very locacious and persuasive and whatever. And the other side just shuts down. Yeah. But you know you've not really actually arrived at a better outcome. All you've done is basically marshal your intelligence to be in service of your ego, right? Whatever it is that your ego wanted you to do. In that, anyway, so that's just one example of like a few different sort of ways in which our intelligence actually hampers our capacity to. Tune into the more textured, multifaceted nature of truth, right? In situations, so true. I love that, and 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 even building on that, when the when I think language can sometimes be our enemy with this thing too. The more skilled we are in language, the more skilled we are in storytelling, the more skilled we are at narrativizing whatever situation we're in. When yeah. so much of culture really doesn't have anything to do with language, it has to do with behavior. Yeah. If we're going to be a good teammate, those things are not things we say or things we type. They're things we do, you know, they're, mm. they're intentional actions to support each other where we need it to turn toward problems and figure them out, um, to lend a hand and those sorts of behaviors go way beyond language. So that's one good measure of whether a good culture exists or not is to sort of imagine if you were looking at it from space and you could only see the movements of each individual and the, and how they would help each other. And every good culture would sort of have the same x-ray pattern. You know, you would see behavior of people looping out and exploring and then bringing the information back to the group. And you'd see people grouping around a problem and words wouldn't matter because down deep, they kind of don't. Hmm. Oh, how powerful. That is so beautiful. I love it. I was giving a talk the other day to a group and uh, the lady at the back, you know, this was an international group. She raised her hand from the HR and she said, Professor, do you mind speaking a little slowly? I was like, you know, 15 minutes into the conversation that I said, I'm sorry, I tend to get passionate. I speak, you know, fast at that time. But then I also paused and I said, you know, but sometimes I feel like true communication is just like some kind of like a spirit to spirit exchange where language is even in some ways, you know, just, you know, marginal to the whole experience. You know, like when you listen to a piece of music and you don't even necessarily understand the words, you know, so you're you're reinforcing that idea more at a group dynamics level, too, that there's something going on beyond just the processing of words. I, I love that. In your book, you know, The Culture Code, you speak about how. When you visited groups, you you noticed a distinct pattern of interaction, you know, and I'm more or less almost like quoting from your book here, Daniel. You talked about how, you know, it's not in the big things, but the little moments of social connection that you saw a lot of power in these groups, um, whether a military unit, movie studio, inner city school, and some of it was like close physical proximity, uh, profuse amount of eye contact, physical touch, like handshakes and fist bump, bumps and hugs and, um, you know... Uh, I'm curious, um, given this, yeah. you know, physicality aspect of sort of what makes us at a human to human level really like connect and flow with each other in the context of the world we live in today, yeah. right? Yeah. Where we've had to enforce hybrid and virtual workplace environments. Uh, what have you found from your research to be um, ways to fill those gaps? Yeah, it's fascinating. It's a good way to frame it, fill those gaps. And I don't think, I guess the, this has a few dimensions. One is that I don't think that gap can ever be completely filled. I, I don't think we are not, we're not wired to build deep, lasting, real relationships online, um, purely virtually, purely through these, these little windows that we're using now. But you can sort of use it, uh, a hybrid idea is, does work. Most of the effective experiments I've seen in this time right now have to do with toggling where you have short bursts of physical presence with longer bursts of virtual. So the relationship 
is is founded in real life, forged in real life, and perpetually renewed in real life, sort of like a booster shot, but it doesn't exist purely in virtual life. And then the other thing I've seen done, which is interesting, is trying to create kind of a virtual space um, in which kind of a virtual space to connect where you don't try to pretend that virtual is physical. A lot of times we come to these Zoom meetings and we just sort of act like it's physical, right? But there's a man named Glenn Fajardo. He's at Stanford and he's wrote, written a book about virtual rituals. And his big point that he makes that I think is very true is that virtual is deep down voluntary. You, If we're physically together and we walk in a room together, I kind of have to pay attention to you and you kind of have to pay attention to me. But in virtual, you don't actually do. You actually have to be interested. You actually have to be engaged. And so it's really important before a virtual meeting to create some shared space. And the advice that Glenn gives in his book is very wide ranging, but some of them are as simple as eating together on camera or everyone doing something physical together or uh, someone plays a piece of music and people try to guess whose favorite song it is, or everyone bites a lemon at the same time. Whatever, you can come up with anything, but as long as it's not directly related to the work you're doing, and as long as it sort of creates some genuine sharing and insight and uh, some sort of empathy back and forth so that you're not trying to make virtual a substitute for real, you're actually trying to inject virtual with new energy that makes virtual as good as it can be. Yeah. Wow, thank you for those. Thank you for those. Uh, both very, uh, very practical, very, very helpful. I can, um, I mean, the, the first one you talked about could almost be like a major prescription, right? For today's time, people are, you know, those who are really wanting to work from, from home and things, and not wanting to necessarily be, you know, trapped into like a daily commute kind of lifestyle. Uh, but you're saying, but yeah, but once in a while, if you come together, that gives you that like shared connection. I had that happen recently with our team. Uh, you know, at Mentora, part of our team is in India, and I. Hadn't gone there for a long time, you know, with COVID conditions and all that. But, you know, I did go back recently and um, we had a reunion of sorts, you know, bringing the whole team together, which we, you know, displaced them from the office. And, you know, they're in different places now working remotely. But uh, it was so beautiful. It was I, I took a video of like some of those moments of, uh, oh, wow. yeah, just shared camaraderie and, and connection and all of that. So I, I appreciate value very much what you're saying. One of the things that really... Um, I think like the thing I've taken like the most from, you know, from the um, work that you've done around culture and this culture playbook in particular is to not assume culture as something which is just like given to you, right, mm -hmm. on gift wrapped, right? Like you just walk into it and it's there, mm -hmm. um, you know, but it's something that is uh, consciously architected and executed, right? Yes. Um, uh, you know, idea and... Um, you know, and you talk as one example of one of the very practical prescriptions that you have in the book of, um, you know, moving away from saying, like, is somebody like a culture fit to more like, you know, would this person actually help contribute to the advancement of a culture? I love that. So can you can you talk a little bit about this idea of like the conscious development of culture? Yeah. And, um, and then we can maybe take a you know moment on this one tactic. Yeah. Culture happens so naturally that we assume it's we assume it's sort of magical we assume it's kind of in our gifts we assume it's an extension of our personality and that's how we think about it with other cultures when we think of walt disney we think oh that's just walt disney that's how they are or we think of the navy seals oh that's just how they are but in fact um as as the ups and downs of all cultures sort of reveal culture is a living thing it's not like your genes it's much more like your health and and so as with health 
you can't just sort of lay back and let it happen. You actually have to have some intent. You have to say, well, I'm going to eat. Uh, I'm going to move my body. Um, and if I do certain things, certain calisthenics or certain forms of diet, it will make me stronger and healthier. And so those behaviors are what create the health. The health doesn't happen automatically. It happens because of those actions. And because these cultures are, they're living entities. I think the best model for it is that it's like a giant brain or a giant, it's like a, it's like a, a being, right? And like with any being, you need to have a heart that is pumping energy. You need to have eyes to figure out where to go. Uh, you need to have a muscle so you can perform and do things. And that's why these behaviors of connection and safety, of trust and vulnerability, and of purpose and direction are so important because they're functional. And the one that you you mentioned quickly is, is a classic one. We've, we've used that word culture fit for many times. And what we've basically meant by that, I think, is that it'll be an easy onboard. He's one of us. She's one of us. She gets it. She gets us. We get her. And what we're actually testing for there is just bias, right? We like people who are like us. We love people that are like us. So we tend to overhire people that were like us. And having a culture fit actually doesn't make you a better group. It makes you a more comfortable group. It makes you easier to banter. It makes it easy to be around. But you know, the best brains are diverse brains. The best brains are drawing from a variety of perspectives to look at problems from a variety of angles. And so the question to ask isn't, is it a culture fit? Because if you do that, you're headed for a monoculture, the, the deadliest group of all, the most boring, predictable group of all. Maybe Peloton was a monoculture. That might be why they failed. But instead, you're getting who, who can contribute? Who can, what perspective don't we have? Who, what voice do we need to have in this room? What creativity could we tap into? And so that's the kind of thing that is more uncomfortable around the water cooler. It's not as easy and they're not wearing the exact same shirt you're wearing and it doesn't feel like a fit, but that's the kind of discomfort, just like with any exercise, makes you stronger. And so many of these exercises in the books and, and, and other places um, involve a little bit of discomfort. You know, They involve just a little pause where you say, wait a minute, let's, let's have a conversation about how we're doing. You know, there are these short, simple things, or let's let's talk about what went wrong and what we might do differently next time. They're uncomfortable pauses that take you out of the flow of your work, but actually they're massive investments because the, you're building and strengthening the health and strength of your of the body of your culture. And just like any calisthenic, it's it's painful, but that pain is actually a sign of gain. Like that that pain is an inescapable really important signal that you are getting stronger together. That's that's how we're built physically and that's how we're built culturally. Uh thank you for that Daniel. Are you familiar are you familiar with the the work of um you know John Gottman the the relationship you know kind of you know yeah. expert right? Yeah yeah. So I mean some of the things you're saying uh evoke some of the findings you know from his work on what it takes to thrive as a couple mm -hmm. right? Yeah. To be in a masterful relationship. And uh, it's fascinating to me because I, you know, I have this like mathematical kind of temperament. So I like to kind of like form connections and see patterns. And um, I remember like uh, some of the um, teachings, you know, from uh, like Gandhi and Mother Teresa. In both cases, what I found is that they were strongly emphasizing the, um, the responsibility each of us has to really seeking to bring some of these values in to active manifestation in our immediate relationships, 
hmm. you know, within our family and within our immediate circle. And their view was that what actually gets propagated through society is just a reflection of what is silently happening in people's own homes. Hmm. You know, and uh, and so. So anyway, so that's intriguing me a little bit here that, that, that you know, that, that maybe, you know, at the root of all of this is also our responsibility to parent the right way, right? Yeah. Uh, so that if we give the right experiences right from a very early stage, people just end up more naturally showing up as a next generation version of a human being of the kind that we will now need in the way you've described, right? Much more collective in, in, our, in our outlook. Um, but then I also want to like zoom out for a moment. And if you think about like culture uh, at like a national level, for example, right? Um, you know, it just struck me that um, this point about diversity that you made of uh, not only looking for culture fit, but looking for culture contribution. That isn't that in fact, one reason America has been um, really uh, benefited so much over the years in the way, yes, we are having our challenges. Yes, there are fault lines. Yes, we are a work in progress. But we have to also acknowledge and appreciate what is very special about this culture. I mean, I certainly, for one, chose to move to this country and you know, embrace it as, as, as my, my, my nation and, and all of that. And it was done because of a huge amount of appreciation I have for what is America. And, and today, I continue to see America as uh, being shaped and silently influenced by so many different, very diverse forces at play, in part because of the diversity of, uh, yeah, just the, you know, immigrant communities that have like come here in waves over the centuries past. Oh, it's so true. It's so true. The science bears that out too, in terms of patents and in terms of the impact that uh, our diversity has had on our creativity and our perspective. Um, and there are definitely some challenges now when it comes to those, to how we're, to, you know, sort of the political landscape. But I agree with you that down deep, that is, you know, it's a, it's a strength uh, morally, but it's also a strength kind of, you know, for our nation's brain. Our group brain is a lot smarter for having uh, all the different groups that can be in it, in it and fully participating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, in your book, you speak about a three-part kind of framework. You alluded to it briefly in your comments already. I just want to, um, you know, raise it even more to conscious awareness for our, our audience here. So you talk about building safety mm -hmm. as one of the three key prerequisites for you know, a high-performing team culture, yep. sharing vulnerability, and mm -hmm. then establishing purpose. Yep. And um, I thought maybe like, we could take a moment here to talk about the purpose part, because um, you know, when you're talking about diversity and when you're talking about you know, not necessarily bringing in people who are you know, just clones, right? Um, there's, isn't there a little bit of like fusing of opposites we have to do here where on the one hand you want to celebrate that d difference, you know, that you might see out there, but you at the same time still want to check for some amount of harmony or alignment with, uh, with the team's core purpose. Yeah. Right. Right. Harmony and alignment. Those are nice words. It's, it's true. You know, if we were to bring a bunch of people together on a team to do a project, we might all be coming from a different point of view. I might be really interested in some learning piece of it. You might be really interested in the impact piece of it. But that's why that, that, that function of safety, that first step of building a platform of safety is so important because the root of safety is not comfort. The root of safety is not wrapping everyone in, in a fleece blanket. The, the root of safety is voice. And so the first thing that we would do when we came together is talk about our various interests in it and figure out how we're going to sort of harmonize those and align those towards some higher goal. And making 
that explicit is one of the most powerful things we can do. The, the idea of a mantra, I think, is a really powerful one. It is, it is kind of cheesy. You know, we always hear kind of these catchphrases. But when you walk into great teams, they use catchphrases. Actually, the Navy SEALs do it all the time. They talk about how the only easy day was yesterday, and we shoot, move, and communicate, and we're the quiet professionals. They always use these sort of catchphrases because they orient the mind, they stick in your brain, they're easy to share, and they create kind of a cognitive GPS that lets you navigate toward what's important and ignore what's not important. And so having that conversation around purpose, and some ways in which I talk about it some in the book, are building a mantra map or making a team charter where you just take a minute before the team starts to work and say, let's have this conversation about how, where we're going and how we want to work together. Actually, the design company IDEO, who some of your listeners might have heard of, best design company on the planet, they, they have ritualized this into three meetings on every project team has three meetings. They, their analogy is that it's sort of like taking a trip together. We have a pre-flight meeting, a mid-flight meeting, and a post-flight meeting. And at each one, their attention is pulled. They, they, they stop working on the project and they turn their attention toward the team. How are we doing? Like in the, in the pre-flight meeting, it might be, what are you most interested in? Where are we headed? Um, how do you want to work together? You know, And then the mid-flight, sort of a check-in. How's it going? Are we on track for this? Who else do we need to involve? What's gone missing? What have we done well? Post-flight, what did we learn the most? Who do you want to talk to about it? Um, what relationship got strengthened the most? And they're these short meetings, but they're incredibly powerful because they're putting attention where, where it's at. You know, during the Formula One races, they don't just race. Every once in a while, they pull into the pit and they, they check on the team. They check on the car. And that's how good teams operate, too. They, they take that time away from just racing and getting things done. And they pull into the pit and they say, which I think we need more fuel. I think we need to change the tires, maybe change the driver. Let's, let's stop and see how we're doing. And those sorts of productive pauses um, are really at the core of keeping a team both autonomous and aligned. Um, that, that's where that, I guess that flock of birds image comes in again, where, you know, we can navigate this forest together, but we need to, we need to talk amongst ourselves regularly and talk explicitly about where we're going. Um, that's, that's the conversation that sometimes gets taken for granted where everyone will just sort of say, well, we just, we're going to try to do our best. That's what we're going to try to do. And I think the, the takeaway, um, is you need to be as explicit as possible. You need to really try to think about the impact you want this project to have, to really think about the impact you want your team to have, the learning you want it to have, the end state that you want to create, define that end state that you want to create. And once you've defined that, it, it, it does function sort of like a magnetic north that you can use to navigate by. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think what I learned from that, which is so, so you know, so powerful, what you just shared, is that um, this notion of purpose, it's not just like a one-time exercise. You know, you craft something that you all get excited about as your mission or purpose, put it up on the wall, and then and then now it's obvious that from here on, that's what you're doing. I mean, it's uh, almost like a daily application, a daily affirmation, a daily expression of what is that purpose in the context of this project and, you know, this next move by us. And uh, there's like small purpose and then big purpose. I like that. I, that that's exactly it because we don't have mono, we don't have giant monocultures. We have all these micro ecosystems of cultures, all these little ecosystems. I, 
I just did an event at a big tech company and they sort of broke down to their smaller teams and they were building their mantra maps. They were building what language really captures where we're going and how we want to do it. And one of them came up with the mantra, do epic shit, which is just kind of, you sort of feel it. It's kind of funny. It's almost meaningless. Um, but to that group, it had massive orienting power because it evoked the shared story that this group had. It evoked all kinds of very specific ideas and characters and voices and ambitions in their minds. So it was incredibly powerful to them. So it, it, and it worked in that ecosystem. Would that, would that mantra work for everyone? Absolutely not. But the point is that they got together, they circled up and they created that language. And as Peter Senge says, it's not what the vision is, it's what the vision does. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very popular. It, it's the function of the vision to orient, align, and allow you to navigate together. It, is, is every vision perfect? No. Are you going to continually rewrite it? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You have uh, so many great um, practices, very practical, immediately applicable tools and ideas that um, any of us can use in our groups, um, organized around this building safety, shared vulnerability, and establishing purpose. I'm, I'm looking at a few of these. Um, yeah, my boy, I'd, I'd love to have us talk about each of them. But, uh, but you know, just in the confines of time we have, you talk about normalizing mental health conversations. Mm-hmm. You know, mental health, of course, right now is a very sobering and uh, challenging and pervasive uh, issue that uh, businesses are realizing more and more. They cannot uh, just like sideswipe and ignore and just allow people just to deal with it on their own. Can you talk a little bit about sort of what you've learned about how an issue like that is starting to actually more actively be, you know, a conscious, you know, conversation in, in high performing teams. That's really fascinating. It's fascinating because it, it, it's an example of how fast things are changing. I think this is, there's a time not very long ago where this would be unthinkable, but recently uh, some executives at Genentech made videos about their own mental health challenges and talked about anxiety and depression and things they had struggled with and shared those under the hashtag of let's talk. Um, vividly modeling the types of openness, vulnerability um, that that creates trust and connection. And another group at Google came up with something they call an anxiety party, where you get together with a small group of, of four or five people that you work closely with, probably not your boss, and each of you shares something that you are anxious about. And the rest of the group rates that anxiety between one and five, one being, don't worry about it, five being that's worthy of concern. And then they brainstorm every three, four, and five score. They brainstorm ways to make it better. So people are inventing ad hoc, these sort of ways to bring these issues about around anxiety and other mental issues into the, in, into the center so that people can talk about them, share about them. And we're starting to realize, you know, we really know as a society that it's, it's, if your coworker walks in with a broken ankle, you'll see it. And mental health stuff is no different. Uh, and so figuring out those ways to talk about that and continually normalizing that ends up being one of the more powerful approaches that any culture can take. Yeah. You know, I think that the, the broad theme I'm hearing from you, Daniel, today is that um, there, there's a whole human side, right, to how we show up as teams um, in the workplace. And if we can honor that and learn to engage with that in a way that um, brings out the best in ourselves and others, then... Um, it really multiplies the uh, overall impact the team can have. And one plus one plus one can be a lot more than three. Kind of. um, and it's a pity that, you know, it's not something that we, you know, get to programmatically 
I guess, you know, get exposed to and learn, you know, as part of like, um, you know, our K-12 or, or college education. But it sounds to me like it's like one of those essential skills. I think it is. I think it is. And, and you know, I think there's increasingly language awareness leaders that really help us get better at that. And when we think about, I mean, one of the more effective things that, that, that anybody can do as, as a reflection. And if nothing else, this, this, this whole time we're in is really a, a time where it's, it's spotlighting the power of reflection, the spotlight of, you know, life has been, life is, is never been more busy than it is now. It serves us with so many things we can do, 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 do. And to stop and reflect on what are the best leadership, who are the best leaders I've ever known and why are they so good? And creating conversations around these big, dumb questions like that, which help you get at the intangibles. What are, what's the best group I've ever been in? You know, close your eyes and think about the best, most cohesive group you've ever been in on. Maybe it was a choir. Maybe it was a sports team. Maybe it was family. Like, what made that so good? And, and, and reflecting on these big mysteries, I think, helps us get our hands around uh, these, these, these skill sets. Yeah, yeah. Talking about... Um... Which group, um, you know, has been uh, for you the most powerful or inspiring as a reflection question? I was, I was struck, right? When I, I saw your, um, you know, book on the culture code and, and you, 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 you know, you profiled there and studied everything from, as you say, special ops military units, uh, an inner city school, a professional basketball team, a movie studio, a comedy troupe, and even a gang of jewel thieves. Um, <laughs> So let's maybe move the conversation in this last chapter, Daniel, more to your personal journey. Um, and I guess I have like a couple of sort of areas in which I'd be really curious and interested. I know my audience will as well, which is um, a, like what makes you the Daniel that you are? Like what was, you know, what were some of the like formative things that happened to you in your, in your life that drew you towards this kind of a you know, set of keen interests and uh, a desire to kind of help serve and, you know, propagate, you know, these kinds of ideas in the world. Where, where did that come from? Well, overarching, incredibly fortunate in many ways to be in every way, but to be born in the family I was born into, just sheer, sheer luck. Um, two brothers either side, so very competitive, very interested in performance and competing at a very young age, whether that was in the classroom or in the sports field. Um, the other big factor in my life is that I grew up in Alaska, uh, and moved there when I was three. And so this idea of living kind of outside the mainstream and looking at the world from a bit of a, a remove ended up being very useful as a writer whenever I came down to visit family in the lower 48, as we called it. Uh -huh. uh, it seemed very exotic and strange. Shopping malls, you know, things like that seemed as bizarre as if I had lived on the moon. So that was that was a big, a big factor. Um, the other things that I came from a family of sort of engineers and doctors. Uh, my dad was a radiologist and he always was looking at x-rays. And so at an early age, I had, I was sort of determined to be a doctor, but I had this sense that it was possible to look underneath the surface of things, that there were bones, that there were systems that you couldn't see that were really at the core of what made something work. And, and so when I decided at the last minute not to be a doctor and to go into kind of studying the science of performance uh, from a journalistic perspective, um, that, that core belief still, and that curiosity really was there. This idea that, okay, that's, people look magical and their performance is very magical, but it's not actually magic. Actually, if we could x-ray it, maybe we could see what the systems are that are causing that to happen. And I guess that has been 
my approach throughout uh, to sort of say, to go to something that looks magical and then to sort of probe it and see what's, and see what's really there. Yeah. I love the way you have... Um in a metaphorical way, really uh, taken a couple of very, you know, pivotal, you know, shaping experiences in your life and seen that what you have done is really, um, you know, brought into manifestation. What is it that you were experiencing then? This whole idea of uh, Alaska, you know, giving you more like of a meta perspective, a little bit like away from the fray and you can still look at like the the Madarina, you know, of life, you know, from a distance. And then um, and then your father and x-rays and what that shows you about the hidden systems that are underlying things. Curious, um, these kinds of connection points that you've just drawn for us, um, do you find that you were doing the things you were doing and then at some point you stepped back and as you asked yourself, like, how did I end up here? You started to find, like, actually speaking, even though my dad, you know, was pursuing such a different career for mine, or even though, um, you know, Alaska at some level has nothing to do with like who, what I am. Actually, it does. And it does this way and it does that way. You know, which came first? You know, the instinctual act of moving in these directions and the then looking back and sense making out of it, you know? Yes, or exactly. Yeah. The move and then the sense making, for sure, yeah. for sure. And I'm sure there are 10 different stories I could tell um, that would also be dots to connect Um about this this particular journey, like with anybody, I think I think the ins and, and that's the fascinating thing to me that I that I'm sort of wrestling with and wondering about now that instinctive part and that that urge and I think one of the there is kind of a fundamental energy that every human being has and there's something about that that I it sounds very woo woo and, and mysterious and mystical when you talk about it but there's and we've, we've talked about character and soul, and we've used all kinds of words to describe that over the years, but yeah. there, there's something there, you know, some pattern of pattern of energy, I guess, is the best way to think about it. Yeah, yeah, no, that's beautiful. I, I, I love that. And that was like going to be my hypothesis, but um, I wanted to test and see where, where, where you actually have ended up. Because uh, I've seen that in, in the course of my own career, you know, I was, I was passionate about mathematics and, you know, here I am doing what I'm doing, but I have looked back at times and actually found a lot of what I'm doing being informed and inspired in some ways by certain, you know, mathematical sensibilities about pattern recognition and precision and, you know, a few things like that. Um, so so that, that was really cool to hear. Um, I, I sometimes think about there being some kind of like an infinite like intelligence out there in the universe mm. and manifesting itself in finite ways, you know, through each of us as an agent, you know, to the extent we can tune in and actually be in that like moment of connection with, with, with nature. And, uh, you know, it can only like pack so much, you know, of its genius in any one of us. So each of us has a certain like special role to play, you know, to bring some of that like divine kind of genius, you know, <laughs> into the world. Um, and then collectively, if you look at like all of us together, then it's like an oh, wow, kind of collective understanding of the genius of what, you know, humanity can unfold. But like each of us is having to play like one one facet of it, right? One part of it. And yeah, um, talk about yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, and you, you clearly are doing something very special with your part of it. Um, so um, the, 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 the last like, you know, area that I, I thought would be great for our audience to kind of learn here from you guys. I mean, for our audience, I mean, if you haven't really read any of Daniel's books, I really encourage you to pick, pick them up. They are to me, some of the most densely and richly packed with insight and with really, really compelling storytelling um, and yet uh, very sort of accessible and um, you know, very, you know, just like, um, 
easy for you to keep like engaging page by page, turning the page, um, feeling a sense of movement, you know, within yourself for all the insights that you're getting. So kudos on just your writing craft. But but I want to talk for a moment, Daniel, about your research craft. Mm. So, um, you know, I, I've noticed that you have just like figured out like how to go to really interesting places, mm. uh, hidden nooks, you know, of like, high performance and uh, just, um, you know, inspiration uh, around around the world and um, connect with and then study those uh, those communities. Um, and I, I was wondering if maybe you could share something about what you've learned about like how to scan for and look for those exemplars of like best practices, those bright spots yeah. in our system, you know, if we're part of, you know, whatever system we're part of. and And then how to initiate and build relationships there in a way that um, allows you to be such a close, intimate, astute observer, you know, of the dynamics that you see there? What a great question. Um, and, and it's one that I, that I continually have to wrestle with because I have to reinvent it a little bit for every project. Every project is a little bit unique. But, you know, if you think scan is a really good word that you just used, it, it is sort of a prolonged scan pattern recognition where you're, you're looking uh, for something. You're looking... Uh, for in some ways you're looking for tension you're looking for opposites you're looking for examples where there's a surprise and and that's that's kind of what i'm looking for when when i go to research comedy troops and i find out that the vast majority of comedy stars that are in the in the world today right. all trained in this very particular way uh, they all came out of this very particular school uh, when i found out that the you know, there was a there's a tennis academy in Russia that had produced more top 25 women than the entire United States. And moreover, it was a rundown kind of trashy place. I couldn't resist it. I had to go there. Uh -huh. uh, somebody told me once that journalism is a license to be curious. And I think having that license and and letting your curiosity sort of roam, but you're always looking for tension and opposites. You're always looking for something that is unexpected, a little surprising, um, and something that I end up thinking about. If I find myself thinking about something um, when I'm not actively doing it, that's kind of, I'm paying right. attention to my own attention, um, that ends up being big. The process is very inefficient. I might look at 100 places to find five. Um, I might look at 100 potential case studies to find, you know, 10, uh, but it is Right. It, it is that long needle in a haystack process. And then you sort of are sifting them and seeing which ones look good next to each other, which ones create tension, which there's an element to it that's sort of musical where you're trying to put things into counterpoint with each other, which story mm -hmm. will illuminate the other story the, mo the brightest. Um, yeah. And you're also doing the, the block and tackle fundamental things of journalism, such as let's call the people who know the most about this. Let's call the people who've been studying this for a long time and talk to them. Um, and talk to them about their interests. What are they lit up about? What are they curious about? What are they surprised about? So you're kind of following emotions for a lot of this. Um, and mm -hmm. then when it comes to getting in the door, um, and I do bump into this from time to time, there are many places where people are excited to share. When you say, I'm fascinated by what you do and by what you've accomplished, most people will say, I'd love to talk to you. Mm -hmm. um, there's some places, though, especially in culture, where they say, well, the thing that makes our culture great is that we never brag about it. And we never appear in the press. And so when it comes to those times, you have to be a little more inventive. And I found that what has worked in the past is to appeal to their desire to learn. Um, 
when I went to some of these cultures, a lot of them said, well, no, it's, it sounds like an interesting project, but we don't want to be involved. And then I would try to have a conversation with them about what they might learn from the conversation. And sure enough, most of them took me up on it. When the, when the San Antonio Spurs, when I, when I spent a few days with them, the general manager ended up picking me up at the airport. And then he proceeded to interview me for three days. Like he was so interested in the Navy SEALs. He was so interested in the comedy troupe. He was so interested in the Jewel Thieves. He was so interested in IDEO and Zappos and Pixar that um, that's what makes them great. And, and so you, each one, you, you're trying to find a conversation to have. You're trying to, you're trying to find what's, what's a useful conversation to have. And I realized that, you know, I, I've, um, as I get older in this, I think the more I focus on that conversational element, because it, it, it shouldn't be the case that I parachute in, observe a bunch of stuff and leave and then sell a book. It really, I, I think it should be relational. It should be the case that I can come in and, and offer maybe some, some frames or some mental models or some insights to what they do. And we both can have a learning conversation um, as part of that. So that's, that's ended up being the kind of the funnest part of writing the book, being a being book, writing books is a solo endeavor, but it does end up creating conversations like the one we've had today where you leave a little bit smarter than you came in and you, and you sort of connect new dots. And so that's, that's what I'm grateful for to you, but that's what I'm continually grateful for this type of work because it, it creates those conversations. Yeah. Beautiful. So I think I'm, I'm hearing from you that, you know, it's almost like a masterclass you're giving us, Daniel, right here in a, in a, in a crash course kind of way about uh, journalism and, and, you know, great research driven writing. Um, I'm hearing from you the, you know, the power of storytelling, the, um, you know, the, the, the curiosity, you know, the, the scanning, the, you know, the instinct of like keeping a really high bar and then sifting through and finding, finding the, the few crown jewels, right, from, from a large, you know, a needles in a haystack, like you said, but then also relationship building and tuning in and serving and supporting, you know, the other party and what, what they might most gain from it, including all the learning that you can bring. That, that's beautiful. Um, so, you know, maybe to kind of bring us to closure, um, you have learned and offered up to us so much about human nature and how it can uh, grow and advance um, individually and collectively over the years. Um, in what way has like your you know work uh, changed you? You know, could you could you point like maybe like one you know one thing that from everything that you've seen and done out there and you know et cetera, or just the process of going through all of this that now you look back and say, oh, you know, like I as Daniel have actually changed in a very meaningful way because of like this. Yeah, no, too many ways to count. Um, um, I think, uh, but I, I I think ultimately, um, the idea that you really have to look at everything twice. You know, you, you get an instinctive response, and you can judge that, or you can sort of zoom out and and look at it from a from a larger point of view. And I think when I was young, I was very quick to judge, very quick to be quick to understand what was going on, and. Uh, that's been sort of a softening of uh, of judgment, I think, is what is what happens over time. And uh, a little, you realize how much you don't know. I mean, it's it's it is a cliche. It, it really is, but it is a it's a very deep and real one. Um, to because when you actually tune in to what is really happening, um, you end up taking a much more empathetic and humble stance toward it. Ah, that's uh, so powerful, so powerful. Coming from someone who's uh, an encyclopedia in so many ways uh, of, uh, you know, all of these findings and practical tips that you have, you know, in part shared with us and do so much more in your books as well. 
Daniel, thank you very much for this opportunity to engage with you. Uh, like I've said, um, you know, for, for quite a while, you have been an active informant and guide in some of my own research and work. So to have this moment with you is very, very personally fulfilling and joyful for me. And I know will for my audience as well matter a lot. Um, grateful for all you're doing and looking forward to both the, uh, yeah, the unveiling of this book that is going to be in the market in about a month's time, mm -hmm. uh, yep, the yep. culture, uh, the culture playbook, right? Yep. Um, and then, um, and then beyond as well for the next chapter in, in your journey. Well, thanks for all you do. I really appreciated the conversation and I have a feeling it won't be our last. Thank you. Around that theme, there are these takeaways that I'm walking away with. The first is that we have to destroy this myth that good cultures are about very smooth flowing operations all the time. In fact, hard conversations are a critical part of creating a high performing culture. And what Dan has told us is that these cultures are filled with a different sort of energy, an energy of solving hard problems with people you admire. I love this phrase, solving hard problems with people you admire. My second takeaway, that high-performing groups operate as a community, as a family, as a close-knit group. And the most telling part of the stories that Dan brought on this front were the examples of offboarding and how thoughtfully and differently it is done in these high-performing cultures. For example, the story of the San Francisco 49ers and Bill Walsh and how when somebody leaves that team, they're given the blueprint for success for their next job or the Cleveland Guardians baseball team and how when one of the assistant coaches gets an opportunity to be a head coach, they spend hours preparing that person for success in their next role. My third key takeaway, that vulnerability comes before trust, not the other way around. In other words, you want to create trust in a group, start by opening people up to be frank, candid, uh, to be you know, very, very sort of open about the struggles and the needs that they have to get support and help from others in the group. And you get the beautiful example of Zelensky and how he really fostered trust with you know, his uh, country you know, folks in Ukraine by just kind of offering them up that, look, why do you need my picture there? Put your family's picture there. It will mean a lot more to you. A leader showing a lot of humility in that moment. My fourth takeaway, group intelligence will beat command and control, especially at times of uncertainty and change as we are going through now. And the reason is that there is always some things that a leader or a small group of people at the top just cannot see, just don't have in their experience base. And sometimes they're stuck into old grooves. He gave the great example and the sobering example of Peloton, a business that has struggled in part because there are a few people at the top who were essentially monopolizing all the decision-making authority as he started and seen it. Uh, he also gave a great example of a local restaurant that really came together as a group to problem-solve, ideate, and adapt their approach to COVID-19. My fifth takeaway, we have to move from a feeling that the people we recruit should be those that fit in well in our culture, more to people who can contribute well to our culture. So move from culture fit to culture contribution. And often that contribution means that we bring in people with a certain diversity of ideas, thoughts, and background in order to further complement what is it that we have internally. My sixth takeaway is related to this fifth one, which is while we celebrate these differences, we also keep everybody harmonized around the core purpose. 
to help people get very anchored in the end state that you want them to create. And once you've defined that, to make it function like a magnetic kind of North Star that you can use to navigate by. He gave some practical examples about how to get everybody very aligned around a common purpose. One was this notion of building safety, having people open up about their interests, their needs, and help to connect the dots between that individual situation and the collective group quest so that people can see how what they're doing is harmonized and aligned with both their own personal yearnings and the collective goal. He also talked about the notion of coming up with very pithy and powerful mantras, you know, simple phrases that can be just percolated across the team and the culture, repeated from time to time, and they activate a certain joint kind of hero's journey state in people, the mantras. He also talked about the idea of creating a map, a shared understanding of how we are going to engage in a process through which we can always be learning, giving feedback, reflecting, adapting, and moving on. What's the team charter through which we will be able to bring out the best in ourselves and each other? He gave the idea, example, ideal example of how there are three ritualized meetings, a pre-flight, a mid-flight, and a post-flight. And my final takeaway is the journalistic genius of Dan, you know, how it is that he's able to identify and then build connection with and go out and collect data from and tell these beautiful stories in a very curated way from around the world, these incredible data points of these bright spots in our planet of high-performing individuals and teams. And he spoke there about a few things that were, I think, really helpful insights for us. One that, um, you know, he looks for contradictions. He looks for surprise. He looks for things where you just wouldn't expect in some ways high performance from like that environment. And yet somehow they're producing geniuses. Um, he talks about how the process is very inefficient, that he might look at 100 places to then ultimately find five. That, by the way, gave me a great sense of consolation because I've struggled at times in my own you know, storytelling to have to you know, filter through so much before we get to a few crown jewels. So I related to that very much and also respect him for how he is curating. Um, he also talked about how it's very relational. In other words, that it's not merely about you feeling like, okay, I need this case study from this group that I am visiting, this this. Uh, you know, academy that I'm going to be spending some time with, et cetera. No, it's a give and take. It's a relationship. It's you sharing and connecting with them, almost like colleague to colleague, friend to friend. They're getting things out from you because they see you as this encyclopedia of all these insights that you acquired over the years, et cetera. So this incredibly relational aspect of the craft of journalism as well. And, and that's really it. I mean, at the end, I asked him about his final takeaway or insight for us, and that was beautiful too. You know, he talked about how ultimately he's learned that you must look at everything twice. What a beautiful and powerful yet simple piece of mathematics. The idea that, you know, you can have your instinctual response, but then you pause, you judge, you zoom out, and you see things, as he said, from a larger point of view. All the best, and we'll see you at the next intersections.